If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard, here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what is going on? Uh, grocery profits up, and um, I guess nothing new there. Uh, I don't know what position we can take on that, or um, you know, the government has uh, paraded the CEOs through, and and uh, that hasn't really seemed to have helped in any way. So. Uh, we'll see where this goes uh, moving forward. Uh, on the front of the prime minister, uh, he's in the summit, San Francisco. Uh, Biden, U.S. president and the Chinese Communist Party, uh, President Xi is uh, our meeting. And uh, all this on the heels of uh, the prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, being booed out of a restaurant in Vancouver. A hundred police had to show up and and escort him out. Um, you know, uh, it, we, if you see the video, we'll try to get excerpts. Uh, of it for you um, it uh, goes on for like a minute and a half the video it does itself and uh, and shows that they literally have to pick up and leave after people pro-Palestinian demonstrators are yelling uh, for a ceasefire on him and, and all sorts of things to the point where uh, he uh, literally has to get up and leave the restaurant and then is followed uh, down the street by uh, security officials so there you go uh, on that it's, uh, you know, it seems that the prime minister, uh, in his search for constant search for wedge issues has just divided everybody up and, um, and, and to the point now where I think he's having a hard time finding a friend. And, uh, really, is anybody surprised? Uh, latest out of the Hamas Israel war, uh, Israel has entered the area of the hospital that's in question and, uh, and apparently the base for Hamas. Uh, who are using the Palestinians as shields. Uh, the PM has some pretty uh, angry words yesterday and said that Israel must use restraint. Uh, to which he gets uh, a a prompt response from uh, uh, Netanyahu, the leader of Israel, and said, uh, say the same thing to Hamas, who is using Palestinians as human shields and such. So uh, it goes on, it continues, and um, uh, the prime minister finding himself on hot water on both sides of this uh, discussion. Uh, anyway, uh, that's where we are with what is going on. Um, and um, yeah, that's where we are. So uh, another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Going to be a good one. Uh, coming up, we'll talk to Rick Zamperin and uh, host of Good Morning Hamilton and talk about what is going on, Great Cup festivities and what the buzz is like on the street. Also going to talk about uh, Great Cup festivities and the, uh, obviously, transit strike that is on. Uh, can that move forward before the weekend? Will it matter at this point? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, you might have heard of this uh, uh, story. Uh, you know, I love the space stuff because sometimes the the action on the planet gets a little too he- it's a little too hectic, and you have to look up to the stars for some hope. So there they are out in the um, uh, International Space Station. They're doing some work, and then darn, you lose a toolbox. 
And off it goes, just floats in into space. It's not like, you know, you're working underneath your car and you're just reaching around trying to find a wrench. It's like, oh, where is it? Oh, oh, oh. No, it's just there it goes. And then after a while, I guess it just goes poof <laughs> and, so, and sort of disintegrates. Uh, that being said, I'm having uh, – I, I have an idea that uh, this box of tools may be worth a little bit more than, say, you know, what you got hanging around the basement. Just saying. Also, uh, as I mentioned, uh, President Joe Biden and uh, Xi Jinping are meeting, the Chinese Communist Party president uh, meeting, uh, leader of China in San Francisco. The prime minister also on his way there. We'll talk about that and find out exactly uh, what hopes to be accomplished there. Uh, and yesterday, uh, Mayor Andrea Horvath uh, put out a letter uh, in regard to the strike uh, with Local 107 and uh, the HSR. Uh, we'll talk to Eric Tuck about his response to that. It seems that money is the issue here and the city is not willing to budge on the money issue. Uh, therefore, uh, the union feels there's no sense um, at all uh, having a meeting because that's the sticking point. So um, that's where we are. Uh, no more money, says the city, and the union says, well, we're not coming back to the table unless there is some sort of offer of money. Where do you go with that? All right. Also, interesting article by Tasha Kerridan uh, in the Post uh, talking about uh, the Prime Minister keeping the carbon tax alive despite uh, polls coming out left, right, and center, and two more today. Uh, we'll talk to Leger about this and the just widespread disa- uh, dissatisfaction with the Prime Minister's performance and even most recently with the carbon tax issue. Where do we go from here? My goodness. In case you haven't noticed, there's a big party coming to town this weekend. It's uh, already short, um, very slowly arriving. The uh, Grey Cup arriving in Hamilton uh, earlier on in the week. Uh, tomorrow, Thursday, the awards, uh, um, the awards ceremony takes place. Shaggy. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as we get towards the weekend, Carrie Underwood. The three-day festival uh, going on on James Street. Rick Zamperin, as always, has his finger on the pulse of what is going on. Rick Zamperin with us now. Host of Good Morning Hamilton as well as host of the fifth quarter, uh, which followed every Thai Cats game. Rick, good uh, afternoon. Afternoon. Good to talk to you. I hope you're doing well. I am fantastic. Maybe, maybe boombastic. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> saving that one all week. That's it. Everybody's boombastic for the next couple of days and carry it into the weekend. So, first of all, before we get to what's going on and and the buzz in and around the city, can't uh, can't start without getting you uh, getting your opinion on what happened with the Argos. I mean, I think everybody was surprised. I was mentioning earlier that uh, at one point last week, I heard somebody say this could be the best Toronto Argonaut team in history, and then we have what we have. How, how did you how do you explain what happened? Well, I, I can go a number of ways on this. I think at the end of the day, you know, I'll give credit to Montreal because defensively they were absolutely outstanding. But this has to go down as one of the biggest choke jobs in CFL history. You have a team mm. that is 16 and 2, rewriting the record book in terms of, uh, you know, Toronto football excellence. Uh, probably has the most outstanding player at the quarterback position. And Chad Kelly was a great defensive team, played awesome special teams, was at home, biggest uh, attendance in BMO field history for an Argos game. And they pooped the bed. Uh, yeah. They were not good. They, they, you know, they played a good game defensively, but man, you got to win those kind of games and, and really show the league that last year's Grey Cup victory wasn't a fluke. Uh, and I'm not saying it was, but uh, man, you you got to win those home playoff games, and they just could not get the job done. Almost as good for the Tie Cat fan as winning. 
Well, you know what? I, I, you know, as a Ticats fan myself, listen, I would have been okay with Toronto winning last week, but losing in the most excruciating fashion this Sunday, <laughs> that would have been great. All right. I hear you. So uh, the buzz has clearly taken over the city. Uh, what I think is great about the this year's edition of is that um, in, instead of just concentrating on the Grey Cup festivities, they're doing all kinds of things in the Hamil- in Hamilton, uh, regardless of, and just blending it into to one giant party, whether it's the Santa Claus Parade, whether it's going on what's on uh, James Street through Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Yeah, this is really taken over the city. This is, you know what, uh, when you look at the festival lineup, and anyone can check it out online at greatcupfestival.ca, there is really something for everyone. If you're a hardcore football fan, you know you're going to have fun because nothing really has changed in terms of fans from across the country converging and talking about the game that they love and the players they cheer for, the teams that they support. They're all bringing their swag. We'll see jerseys from every team from across the league, whether you're at First Ontario Centre or the Convention Centre or First Ontario Concert Hall or even at the game on Sunday at Tim Hortons Field or even at the parade. I'm sure we'll see some there. But, you know, from from uh, besides a football standpoint, this is a party for all ages. You have things like the Community Race to the Cup, which goes tomorrow morning, where hundreds of kids in this community will mm. be racing to Tim Hortons Field and will be given medals and it's going to be a great experience. Or, you know, if you're a concert goer, not not only do you have the Grey Cup um, Music Festival with Carrie Underwood on Friday night at First Ontario Centre, you know Shaggy's going to rock the stage at the Avalon Theatre at Falls View Casino in Niagara Falls as part of the CFL Awards Ceremony, another football-focused event with entertainment blended in. You have you know the neighbourhood block party just before um, the Grey Cup from 2 to 5. Um, just in front of Tim Hortons Field with bands like Monster Truck and, you know, yeah. the Dirty Nil and No Bro and Steve Strongman's going to be there. And it's just going to be a great party, whether you're into football, whether you love music, whether you love Hamilton or you're from anywhere in the country. This is going to be a great celebration. And again, the game sold out, but there's so much other stuff to do in and around the community that's free that you can be a part of and, and um, you know, then watch the game from home or wherever you want to watch it because there's so much else going on. Yeah, I mean, the Fan Central, I think, you know, you can bring your kids down. It's a PA day on on Friday, so I'm, I'm imagining, yeah. even though, you know, the weather might be a little bit iffy, this is a once-in-a-generation type thing. You know, the, the last Great Cup we had was muted because of COVID in 2021. Previous to that, you had to go all the way back to 1996 to get, uh, you know, that Grey Cup experience. So for kids in the community, for families out there looking for something to do either tomorrow or Friday or Saturday, you know, Fan Central on, on James Street North is going to be great. There's there's so many different activations. I'm going to be down there tomorrow and Friday. Not not that I'm any of a draw, but I'll be down there talking about what's happening mm-hmm. at Fan Central and the, and, the, and the festival. And, you know, whether it's a flag football game or, you know, there's autographs, there's going to be players down there. It's really going to be a lot of fun and talk about the championship week show you've got going on yeah noon uh, to one all week this week on 900 chml i'm just uh, showcasing the the great cup game the festival itself we we had the commissioner on earlier today we had uh, peter dykowski former ticat regaling us about his great cup experience uh danny mcmanus earlier on in the week talking about how you know he thought great cup week and prep and preparing for the championship game was the easiest week on the cfl season and i'm thinking well you're nuts dmac but mm. he said that listen all the pressure was off they laid it all on the line. They knew that, that there was no more practicing or games after that game. There was, you know, a six-month offseason. On the flip side, we had Andy Fantuz, who played in the league for a bunch of years, including here in Hamilton, and won a Grey Cup with Saskatchewan in 2007, saying that was the toughest week that he's ever endured because 
you know, you, you win the, in, in his case, the CFL West final, you know, the next morning you're packing everything under the sun. You have an hour to do so. You got to get on the plane. You're landing in, you know, that gray cup host city. You're signing autographs. You're doing TV interviews and yada, yada, yada. Um, two very different perspectives from two CFL legends on how they're preparing for the gray cup. And I'm sure players on the Alouettes and the blue bombers are facing that today. All right. So uh, prepared to make a prediction yet or too early? I am all in on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Listen, I think they got a great defense. They have an awesome offense. They are so well coached. Their special teams is great. They just play the game right. But listen, Montreal is white hot. Their defense is off Mm. the charts. If Montreal's offense can play as good as I think they can, we might have a game, but I'm picking the Bombers. All right, there. You heard it here. Uh, Rick Zamper with us, host of Good Morning Hamilton, as well as host of the fifth quarter during the season. And we'll be down at ground zero uh, through the rest of the week, uh, given us play-by-play of what is going on. Rick, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great time. You got it. Take care. Why are children in newcomer families in East Hamilton developing health issues like type 2 diabetes? Could it be just lack of getting out and doing uh, such a movement? Uh, it may take people by surprise. Garbage in fields, busy roads, are they barriers to health? Uh, the doctor and others at McMaster University have been looking into it. Let's bring in Dr. Sonia Anan, Associate Vice President of Global Health at McMaster University and with us now. Sonia, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I am. So uh, talk about this study and the increase in type 2 diabetes. Uh, what do you think the factors are? Yes, sure. Um, well, certainly we know that uh, kids who do not get outside to play uh, and are not physically active on a regular basis, as well as kids who are eating you know, a lot of processed foods, uh, and using screens uh, are at increased risk for chronic diseases. Uh, begins with being overweight, but can become as serious as adult onset type 2 diabetes as children. So how do we alleviate these concerns? How do we get people more active? Sure. Um, well, you know, 10 years ago, we would have thought, oh, we'll give a physical activity prescription to the family and say, Sign your kids up for sports at the rec center. But we know that it's broader than that. And our research in the East End, the Riverdale neighborhood, just shows us how important understanding the built environment is to health. And that means that uh, families need easy access to places to play, green space. Uh, They need to be able to play in safe areas and Things such as crossing a busy street like Centennial Parkway is a barrier to outdoor play, as is accessing some of the city programs. Because newcomer families often don't speak English as their first language, don't understand the system of how to sign up for recreational opportunities. And because of that, um, kids don't get an opportunity to play and perform physical activity on a regular basis. And I'm guessing as we head into the winter months, that even becomes more of a challenge. We know that as adults, it's probably already started. It gets dark early, and we're more likely to be couch potatoes when it's dark. And so we really need to be proactive um, and, and, and work with families to figure out what do the kids like to do, and that's how we started, and then connect them with opportunities. So in the winter season, we'll still continue with uh, 
uh, outdoor hiking and such, but we'll also move indoors for things like indoor soccer, basketball, and uh, ice skating. You know, you bring up a valid point too, Sonia, and we don't think of this uh, much because you just assume, well, kids just go out and play. But if you're in a dense neighborhood and, um, you know, there has to be green space, there has to be a place for them to play, there has to be a park, there has to yeah. be, um, uh, you know, a space for them to get out and, and be kids per se. Yeah, and if you've been to the Riverdale area, um, you'll notice that there are lots of high-rise apartment buildings that surround the Lake Avenue School and the Catholic School, and there's green space there, and the the families like to go out there because it's so close to where kids live. But uh, we have um, heard from the families that if, for example, there are um, garbage uh, uncollected from the fields or full garbage cans overflowing or flooding in in the field, those are barriers once again. So even though there is local green space. It's often not usable by the kids. And then parents worry that, you know, the kids would be exposed to a lot of garbage. That's not good for their health uh, or other safety concerns. So it's more than just looking on a map and saying, well, there's green uh, space right next to an apartment building. You really have to get down into the details to figure out why kids aren't getting out to play. Hmm. Um, so again, beyond the facilities or even green space, how important is it as we look to infill in cities, create more density? How do you balance this and make sure that we do have those areas? Yeah, so there's a whole uh, group of uh, academics and urban planners who know what to do. And this mixed land use is certainly Um, you know, what we need to do where we're Hmm. thinking of health at the beginning of restructuring a neighborhood. We often like to use the phrase that we want to make the healthy choice, the easy choice. So rather than think about, oh, there's no place for kids to play or no green space after we've designed the buildings and the crosswalks and the streets, we need to start right at the outset, building in walkable, playable and enough green space for um, populations to get out and, and play. And we also know that being exposed to things such as uh, green fields, as well as trees, tree canopy, are all associated with improved mental health and well-being. So it's really what we're trying to do in our project and really trying to emphasize is the importance of thinking about health at the outset of designing something new in our city. Uh, with the issue you're talking about in, in East Hamilton and such and parks that, that may not be maintained, is it more of a maintenance issue? Because if that's the case, it certainly is a solvable problem. Or is it that there isn't enough of them? Uh, well, I think it's probably a combination. But for the one that does exist in the most densely populated uh, area with the high-rise apartment buildings, it's not... Uh, frequent enough garbage removal. And it's often that the community has to make many calls to the principal of the school or the city of Hamilton. And sometimes newcomer families don't have those options. They don't have Hmm. the time. They don't understand how the system works or who to call. English isn't their first language. So, you know, you could think about Ancaster. For sure, there would be a citizen action group making things happen. You don't have that with newcomer communities, and uh, and therefore uh, there's a gap, 
and they have less to offer to their kids. We have heard that, you know, the support system, uh, once people arrive, is quite uh, is quite good, but is it perhaps once they get settled, not as strong as it could be? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we are welcoming, uh, as a country, so many newcomers, which is a good thing. Uh, however, we think that once we get them set up with a health card, we've covered all aspects of health, but we haven't uh, really thought about prevention of health consequences or adverse health consequences, especially with kids. And so rather than wait, you know, and realize that kids have chronic diseases, we should be very proactive about that. And we're really, uh, through our SCORE research program, trying to develop a toolkit for cities across the country where they can think first about health when they welcome newcomers to their city. Dr. Sonia Anand with us, Associate Vice President of Global Health at McMaster University. Newcomer families, uh, specifically East End of Hamilton, developing some health issues like type 2 diabetes. Do they have enough resources to get out and about and take advantage of services and facilities that are in the community? Uh, Sonia, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your interest. Statement from the mayor, uh, Han- uh, Andrea Horvath, on day six of the transit disruption. Uh, this came out yesterday, uh, and uh, the mayor says, we appreciate and respect our transit workers. We want them back on the job, not just so we can resume the daily transit services people need, but because we want them to feel valued and supported and heard. Uh, to end this disruption and find a resolution that works for union members, all of Hamilton, the city bargaining team, has reached out to ATU Local 107 three times since the strike began. On Thursday, including today, three times union leaders refused to return to the bargaining table with us. That does a disservice to the city and the individuals on the picket line who want us all working hard on their behalf. The city offers to transit workers included a wage increase of 12.75% over four years. That increase helps address the rising cost of living and is the exact same increase that has been accepted by the city's over 3,200 QB members, as well as unionized employees and other jurisdictions who have recently ended their strikes as recently as this week. Uh, a wage increase higher than that would be unfair to Hamilton's other unions and to the people of Hamilton whose transit fares and property taxes would go up as a result at a time that's financially difficult for people. The fact won't change before or after the Grey Cup is played in our great city. It doesn't mean we have nothing to talk about. The bargaining table is where both sides can discuss, discuss working conditions, benefits, and other measures that demonstrate the city's commitment to its workers and their well-being, but we can't sit there alone says Mayor Andrea Horvath to talk more about all of this. Former Mayor of City of Hamilton, Larry Deany, and with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, uh, Scott. I am fine. So where, what do you do now? I mean, do you just sit and wait it out? Uh, uh, you know, obviously nobody envies anybody in this position. How do you move forward with this? Well, if I were the union, I'd be reading that statement that the mayor made yesterday that you just read out very carefully, because I think there is a path forward suggested by uh, the mayor. Um, One is a hard line statement that essentially says, look, if you're using the Grey Cup as leverage, the the offer is not going to change before or after the Grey Cup. So we're we're determined to uh, give parity in terms of our offer that we've done with all the other union groups and have been accepted by other union groups. So that's the hard line statement. The path forward is in the 
bargaining table is where you talk about benefits and other issues. And that should be a cue that there would and might be, for the union, that there would and might be some enhancement that could be uh, discussed at that point in the, in the negotiations. Because as we know, when there are negotiations, you, ne- you negotiate both a salary, but also a benefits package for the members. And sometimes you give a little on salary to get a little more on benefits. And if if the city is determined to keep to the 12.75 or whatever that number is that they've offered and has been accepted by other union groups, I think there's some leeway that at least what I read in the statement by Andrea, that there's some leeway in being able to negotiate some benefits on the other side that would also help the union save face with their members. We didn't get this, but look, we got that. And, and that should be the, the path forward. Um, I, I don't know uh, whether those cues are being picked up. Uh, Eric Tuck, president of Local 107, will be joining us next hour. But uh, we were talking to him just the other day, and he said that although they, uh, the city had, had offered to come back to the table, if there was no more money on the table, then there was no sense having a meeting. So uh, well, it seems but, like they're – sorry, go ahead. Due, but with all due respect to Eric, Eric, how do you know that there's no more money on the table hmm. unless you go to the table and find out a direct? I mean, the, the city's not going to say, uh, here are the enhancements we're willing to make on benefits. Go to the table and find out. And you can always walk away and say, no, we didn't accept it because. And, and, um, and uh, um, unless you do that, you lose even the public relations war. And I think that that uh, the union made an error when they were looking for a 23% enhancement in salaries. Uh, and uh, later, Mr. Tuck had to retract that by saying, look, we've moved off that number. The city should move off its number. Um, so that, that was a, a bit of a blink, I think, on the, part of, uh, on the part of the union. But unless you're at the table to negotiate, how can you negotiate? Uh, so that being said, Larry, do you think there's one more swing at the back, bef- uh, one more swing of the bat before the weekend? Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the the city has determined that that uh, the uh, the Grey Cup is not going to be the leverage that the union thought it might be. And actually, if you look at the history of of strikes, we haven't had a lot. The last one was over 20 years ago, and it was just before the Christmas holidays, and that didn't work out terribly well for the union either. City just uh, at least the region at that time just uh, you know sat them out and 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 eventually they had to um, uh, nego- at least uh, agree to a contract less than than what they wanted even then and Christmas was not the leverage they thought so the city has made a determination it sounds uh, like that that the Grey Cup is not going to be what will drive our stance at the negotiations table. Our stance will be determined by the cost, what we've done for other unions, and what's fair for all workers, including the transit workers. So if that's the case, um, you know, they, they've tried, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, there's no harm in trying, I suppose. But right now, who's being damaged? A, the workers themselves, or, or the, the transit workers, because they're not working. Uh, and B, who are the people that use buses in Hamilton? Well, it's those who can't afford cars, students, and some who choose to to use transit, even though they may have vehicles themselves. And during the Grey Cup, when we are trying to put our best foot forward, I was just downtown there 
dressing up James Street. They've closed it off and yeah. you know, we're set for a party. The public relations is going to be really bad if people who are staying in hotels and need to get transit through to the game will not be able to do so. And they're going to be angry, uh, not so much at the mayor. I mean, these are mostly people yeah. from out of town. They're going to be angry at, at the union, or at least there's a danger of that. And that was, would be a shame. So I would say if I were giving advice to Mr. Tuck uh, and the ATU union, I would say go to the table, um, listen to what the mayor is saying, try to get some enhancements, and, um, and go back to the membership and settle this once and for all. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, the ongoing HSR strike, and the Grey Cup on the way. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, look up in the sky. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's uh, someone's toolbox, and it's lost in space. (laughs) What a drag. Uh, So you're up there, and you're uh, hanging around the International Space Station. You're doing the odd walk or two, and, and, you know... Uh, just maintaining things, and then where did I put that dang screwdriver? And the next thing you know, it and the entire box is floated off into space somewhere. And it's not like you can just head out and get it, I guess. Uh, you know, strap on a rocket pack and just zip out and do an orbit around the station. Uh, let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Am indeed, Scott. Always nice to chat. My guess is, is this is a, a toolbox. It's a bit more expensive than something you might find at your local Canadian Tire. I'm afraid so, and it's definitely history. It's going to become part of the reentry process for space debris probably in about a month. That's the the estimate at the moment. So, as far as we know, what happened, Paul? Well, that's a good question, actually. NASA's a little short on details. Uh, it was during a spacewalk uh, that was taking place, oh, I guess it was about a week or so now ago. And like all spacewalks, there are all sorts of people who are monitoring the astronauts, and it's a step-by-step process you know, of, of doing that. And that. Very heavily choreographed. And literally, uh, they, they put the, <laughs> the toolbox down, didn't tether it, which is unusual. They normally do tether these things. And as you say, the next time they looked around, it was gone. And all of a sudden, there's this frantic looking around out the windows of the cupola and you know, examining all of the feeds. And eventually, somebody saw it literally just drifting out into space. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it, it just wasn't – it obviously wasn't planned. It's just one of those things. And I think we've all done it. You, you get preoccupied doing something, and a little detail got missed, in this case, tethering the toolbox. And Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I can imagine I can imagine the look in the astronaut's face when he saw that floating out or she thought saw that floating out. Um now do we know what was in the toolbox, what was lost? Uh they've not released an itemized listing of it. Uh from what I can gather though, based upon the type of spacewalk that they were doing, it was pretty standard stuff. I mean, literally it was various bolt cutters and cable cutters. Uh, the, the usual sort of spanners, although the spanners in space are a little more high-tech than you get down a Canadian tire. But nonetheless, it was really just a miscellaneous collection that is utilized on the outside of the space station for replacing bolts, for putting in new screws, for cable ties, and so on. So it, it wasn't as if it was 
tens of thousands of dollars, but you know, mm. at an estimate, it probably was you know a few times more than our standard kits down here. So a few thousand dollars was probably lost and is about to burn up. So what were they doing out there? Do we know what the task was? Uh, yes, the, uh, it was a planned spacewalk. They were going outside uh, to basically uh, redo some cables, prepare for some future spacewalks. They were actually working on uh, one of the um, uh, the, the, uh, the electrical uh, power lines associated with the solar panels, converting step-down electricity, converting it to usable uh, current uh, and voltage for the space station. The sort of thing that happens literally every month or so. I mean, this is a big station. It's a five-bedroom house with then some, and it requires maintenance. And this was a pretty standard routine that the astronauts go out and they train for long before they actually arrive at the space station. There's a set of regular spacewalks that all station crew are expected to have mastered before they leave Earth, even if there's no guarantee that they're going to actually need to do it. This was one of those routine uh, efforts to go outside and just you know, do some house repair. Uh, so there was nothing particularly uh, dramatic associated with it. And unfortunately, as I say, they just lost track of the toolbox. Any danger in a toolbox floating around? Well, that, that was the initial concern, of course, that you know, if this thing ends up running into one of the solar panels, then they really do have a bit of a mess on their hands. And that's why everybody frantically started looking for it just to make sure that they knew the trajectory of it and whether or not there was going to be a problem. Uh, and the answer is no. It cleared the station without impacting any of the surfaces. It's apparently in front of the station. Not that that makes very much difference. Uh, but all objects at this altitude suffer a little bit of degradation from atmospheric friction. There's not much air up there, but there's a little bit. And steadily, you lose altitude as a result of this friction and the, the loss of energy uh, associated with whatever the object is. That's why the space station has to be reboosted literally every month. That's why there are engines on board the Zarnia module to keep it aloft at the current altitude. The toolbox doesn't have that. So it's steadily decaying in its orbit. And as I said, the expectation is about a month or so from now, uh, it will enter the upper reaches of the Earth's atmosphere and it'll be history. And as, as I think you mentioned earlier, it's bright enough to actually be seen. It's been cataloged as a piece of space debris. And so if you're really interested, you can go onto the NASA site find out where it is at what particular time. And if you've got a telescope, you should be able to pick it up. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. So will it eventually come down, and will this come down as a big show? Oh, no, 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 no. It's just not that big. Uh, you know, it, Going back to your analogy, it's your pretty standard-sized toolbox, so as to speak. Yeah. Uh, the material in it isn't particularly sturdy from an atmospheric re-entry perspective. So no, this thing is going to burn up in the atmosphere. We don't know where about it it's going to come down, but it's not going to survive entry. So no, it'll be literally toast in a month or two's time. All right, Paul Delaney with us, professor, uh, professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Even toolboxes get lost in space, and, uh, and when they're gone there, they're gone forever. Uh, Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Cheers. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Lots to talk about, whether it's uh, meetings in San Francisco or the latest with the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Reggie, 
what are your thoughts? Uh, what is the latest out of uh, Israel and that hospital, the reports that it had been used as a hub for Hamas? What more do we know about that hospital and what's going on there today? Yeah, so look, we, we understand that uh, Wednesday morning local time, Israeli forces made their way into the Al-Shifa hospital uh, in Gaza City. This is the largest hospital in Gaza, and according to the United Nations, it's the hospital that has always been able to withstand um, you know any of the 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 wars and skirmishes that have taken place throughout the region over the decades. Um, Israel has has long believed that the tunnel network underneath this hospital has been used by Hamas militants uh, as some kind of headquarters, and 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 the Israeli army is now saying and has said within the last couple of hours that. Um, as they raided this hospital, they found weapons, they found munitions, they found uh, communication technology. Hamas is disputing that, saying that this is propaganda being put forward by the IDF. Uh, but at the end of the day, this raid by the Israeli army has faced um, incredible criticism, notably from the United Nations, uh, as kind of violating the charters of war when it comes to what can and cannot be caught up in conflict. Uh, but but Israel says that this is a necessary action. Uh, in order to root out the threats that are being posed by Hamas. Will Israel provide any more proof that 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 this is being used as a hub for Hamas? Well, they 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 do have video, and and they were expected to release video at some point uh, during the day today, showing you know the hall of things that that they found. Um, you know, it it the video would need to be scrutinized. Obviously, there's been then there's been tape that was put out earlier in the day by the IDF showing that they were bringing um, uh, medical supplies towards the Al-Shifa hospital. Some of the video uh, appeared to be edited, so it's really hard to tell, um, you know, and, and verify certain things about pieces of video. But but ultimately, Israel is saying that this is something that they need to do. Um, and they understand that there is sometimes, according to the prime minister, collateral damage during these um, you know, during these kinds of activities. And that is where some of this kind of global outrage is coming, both from the United Nations and from civilian populations around the world. Is Hamas doing anything to protect Palestinians? Well, I mean, in the eyes of of, uh, of the Israeli people and the Israeli government, no. Uh, they're saying that Hamas is using people as human shields, uh, you know, deflecting from what is, is being done by the Israeli army to root out Hamas. Hamas disputes that uh, and says that this is simply an onslaught of daily airstrikes on Gaza. At the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the fact that there are more than 12,000, at least according to the Palestinian Health Authority, 12,000 deaths in uh, in Gaza since this crisis began in in early October, um, it does raise alarm bells, and it is you know stirring up um, a bit of controversy over you know whether or not there's going to be a red line here from Israel's allies to the actions being carried out by Israel. Whatever Hamas is doing or not doing to protect its civilians, that's something that that you know places like the United Nations are simply saying, look, we're not here to try and figure out what Hamas is doing. We simply need to do what we can do to protect people. All right. Uh, Xi Jinping, Joe Biden uh, meeting in San Francisco. Talk about this summit. What's the objective? Well, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, uh, this is an attempt to try and, uh, you know, put onto less shaky ground a geopolitical relationship that has been crumbling and, and kind of fell to the floor and beyond uh, when Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan and, and essentially gave recognition to 
um, a nation that that China claims as its own. Uh, the fact that there's a face to face happening for the first time in a year, you know, there may not be concrete deliverables that are actually going to come out of this beyond you know some promises from both sides. But the world runs on uh, you know surface level optics here, and for the world to see that the two biggest uh, economies are you know pledging to work with each other despite the fact that they have political differences uh you know this is something that's going to set some people some nations some leaders at ease regardless of whether or not the the kind of promises come true considering where the world is right now does that make this even more important uh what sort of message do these two want to send to the world um and why now well, I mean, look, the United States is trying to reopen military communications between Washington uh, and Beijing, uh, and that's because there have been so many kind of issues that Washington has taken with what China is doing, both when it comes to cybersecurity, when it comes to maritime security, when it comes to espionage. They want to ensure that there's a way for these two countries to communicate with each other. But beyond that, given the global crisis that's underway, both in Ukraine and in the Middle East, um, the United States is trying to flex its muscle to say, look, if we want to work together, we need to rely on you, China, to do things like, uh, you know, talk down Vladimir Putin from getting involved uh, in places that he shouldn't be involved, to talk down Iran, use the sway that China has with uh, Tehran uh, to, to not have it provoke any situation in the Middle East uh, and, and broaden out a conflict or war that, you know, is now more than a month in. These are kind of you know, requests and nudges Washington is giving to Beijing. And Beijing, on the other hand, is dealing with its own economic downturn. And so for, you know, people of China to see its leader sitting down with with the president of the United States, it may bring a sense of ease back home in China to say, look, we're doing what we can to ensure foreign investment remains in our country. So there's a whole host of things that both sides are looking for here. And again, surface optics can oftentimes supersede, you know, the the meat potatoes of what people are actually hoping are going to come out of these meetings. Any downside for Biden in this meeting, looking like we're too cozy, where we should be more combative. That being said, there is an, econo- an economic downturn in China. So um, as far as flexing the muscles, has that toned down a bit? Well, I mean, look, Republicans have criticized President Biden for being too soft with China, for making too many concessions to China. Um, and if Joe Biden comes home and, you know, in the weeks and months to come, you know, if, if issues haven't been resolved, like, you know, China not uh, dealing with human rights matters or China continuing to push out fentanyl products into the markets that, you know, move through Mexico and ultimately land in Canada and the U.S., uh, you know, Republicans may go after Biden and say, look, you're giving away more things and China's obviously not doing anything here. But but President Biden is looking at this through the eyes, you know, both domestically and uh, on, on a kind of broader global level here that for the United States and China to be working against each other. Uh, you know, is in the negative on on a broad scale here. And we heard the president say that, you know, competition and cooperation cannot result or lead to or, you know, fall to conflict, Um, you know, and for the two to be sitting with each other, again, even if we don't see any deliverables here, the fact that they're meeting face to face, this is a big deal. And it makes it harder to say that Joe Biden isn't doing the best thing in the interest of, of the United States. How long will these meetings last between these two? The meeting is expected to wrap up in the next couple of hours. If it hasn't already, there's going to be a joint statement, a joint press conference um, with President Biden later on around seven o'clock Eastern time. uh, And we'll get a better idea as to what the two uh, talked about. You know, the president may take some questions here, uh, but this is a big moment. I mean, look, this is supposed to be, you know, a broad meeting in 
California about trade um, and the fact that there are so many kind of isolated issues that are veering the focus away from that. You know, what the president says today, what he talked about with China at the table behind a closed door, there could be big implications here. And we'll hear what he has to say in a few hours. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, leaders of China and the U.S. Uh, meetings underway in San Francisco. We'll see what happens. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right. Yesterday, Mayor Andrea Horvath released a statement regarding the strike, uh, ongoing HSR strike, ATU Local 107. Uh, now we'll talk to Eric Tuck, who is president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. In the letter, uh, Andrea Horvath said the city has reached out to the uh, local three times since the strike began, puts the onus on the leadership to return to the bargaining table. The city's offer to transit workers includes the wage increase of 12.75% over four years. Uh, uh, addressing the rising cost of living and the exact same increase that has been accepted by the city's over 3,200 QP members, as well as unionized employees in other jurisdictions who have recently ended their strikes. To talk more, Eric Tuck, president of Local 107, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, Scott. Uh, thank you for having me. So where are we now, Eric? Any discussion? Any reaching out at all? Uh, no. So the uh, as the, the mayor has said uh, several times in the media, she's reached out three times to us. Uh, however, each and every time we've had those conversations, they've made it clear that they're not prepared to move on wages. Uh, the, the same wages that they presented us in the final offer that were pre- presented to my members uh, and my members rejected by 94%. Uh, that being said, it seemed like there was some wiggle room with other things. Is that not worth it to the union? So, so when when you talk about other things, uh, they are talking about a lot of language issues. Uh, our contract is pretty clear as far as the language. We we don't have a lot. You know, uh, unlike QP, who did uh, settle uh, their contract, uh, they did deal with some some language issues that they had concerns with. Uh, our contract, uh, we've got good language. It's just getting it enforced and getting the city to follow it. Uh, as you know, the, the last contract we we bargained for washrooms and for time out of the seat. Uh, at the end of the line, and uh, we're a year past that contract, and they're still not honoring the agreements we have in place on that stuff. Um, uh, some will say, uh, how do you know unless you go to the meeting and, and, and at least show up? Yeah, so uh, we, we said we're more than prepared, uh, but we, we can't go to the negotiating table if you're going to be negotiating with yourself. If they're not prepared to move on wages, and that is the key issue at this time, uh, my numbers have made it very clear. We've lost money uh, due to inflation over the last three or four contracts, uh, and, and my members cannot continue to afford to lose money to inflation. Uh, when you look at our last four-year contract, it's 1.75 across the board. Um, in the last two years alone, it was three and a half and seven percent. So, how do you continue losing money? Uh, it's getting to the point where my members are literally being priced out of this market, the very market we've served for 125 years. Uh, so, wages, like you're not budging on any of this. Um, it's not even worth showing up for a meeting. So it's not that we're not willing to budge. In fact, we said we're more than willing to budge. Uh, you know, the mayor kept touting a 23% uh, increase is what we were asking for. That's where we were when we left the table, uh, when the, the employer locked in their heels and said, we're not going to bargain any further. Uh, bargaining takes two willing partners. 
we're more than willing to go back to the bargaining table uh, and to place an offer on the table that is less than 23%. And we need them to come with an open mind and prepared to bargain in good faith, which means they have to be willing to move off their current position. Um, but somebody's got to move off of something if anything is going to move forward. So, again, um, what is the harm in at least sitting there and looking at each other across the table? Won't that at least make taxpayers feel like we're doing something here? Uh, what I think it does is offer false hope, uh, false hope to my members and false hope to my passengers, uh, who we care deeply about and we really would like to get back to serving. Uh, but the only way to do that is to get a contract that we can agree on. Uh, I actually am bringing my negotiating team back together to have a discussion on whether or not we will go back to the table. Um, but there has to be a willingness for the mayor. Uh, she needs to take the handcuffs cuffs off of her bargaining team and allow them to come there prepared to bargain in good faith. And bargaining in good faith means that they have the ability to move uh, if we make the reasonable arguments for them to be off their, their current offer. Some may say, well, uh, you know, it takes two to tango, two to dance. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. You're saying they're not moving, but they're saying you're not moving. So at the end of the day, the only thing that's not moving is the buses. But, but you got to remember, Scott, we have said we are prepared to move off of our 23%. We've said that all the way along. It's the city that is saying they absolutely refuse. They will not move off of their current position. Uh, so it, we are willing to move. We have said that all along, and we want to get things moving again. Um, so as a show of faith, we may uh, I am calling my team back together to see if they're willing to sit down with the city. Uh, but we're sitting down to talk about the things that are important to our members, and that is wages that keep pace with inflation. And the mayor needs to understand that. Uh, with her background in the labor movement, she should certainly understand. In fact, we have many uh, clips of her standing up in Queen's Park saying how important it is for workers to be able to keep pace with inflation and the cost of living. Uh, housing prices in this market have actually doubled in the last, I would say, five to eight years. And my members are literally being priced out of the market. We're the core workers. We're the frontline workers that are carrying this city day in and day out, and they need to be respected and paid wages to keep pace with inflation. What do you say to those that say it's your job to sit down there and not leave that table until either the deadline is there or that a deal is reached? And, and this is just, you know, playing games on both sides. At the end of the day, you should all be at the table. So, so we absolutely whether even if you're just sitting there staring at each other, Eric, you should be at the table. Yeah, so we did that. We sat there uh, and we until the deadline came, and the deadline came. The deadline was set by the city. They gave us the final offer and said, we're not, absolutely not moving, we're not budging, we're not talking any further about these numbers because those numbers are final. The mayor went on in the press and said, those are the absolute numbers. She doesn't care if our working conditions are different than other workers. She doesn't care if our situation is different. She wants to do a pattern bargain, but that pattern bargain works for the bureaucrats that are making $120,000 to $160,000 a year. That pattern bargain might work for the politicians, but it's not working for the, the frontline workers who are carrying the city day in and day out. Uh, they need the wages that keep pace with inflation. Otherwise, we go from being the working core to the working poor. Eric Tuck with us, President of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. Eric, thanks for the time. Good luck. Absolutely. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Fire now! Cease fire now! Cease fire now! Cease fire now!
out was a scene yesterday at a couple of uh, Vancouver restaurants uh, in British Columbia. The prime minister dining there and then uh, confronted by pro-Palestinian protesters who literally drove him out of the first and then the second restaurant um, and um, and off into the night, so to speak, while they were chanting, uh, chanting for a ceasefire uh, in the uh, Israeli-Hamas conflict. Uh, uh, quite the scene. Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, journalist, writer with the National Post, uh, G Zero Media, and her Substack page. In my opinion, author of the Right Path, and the latest in the National Post. Uh, Tasha Carradine, only Justin Trudeau's vanity keeps the carbon tax limping along. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Yes. So, Tasha, before we talk about your piece here, what about uh, what we saw? um, You know, there's been incidents before where the prime minister has uh, been confronted but kind of brushed it off as a handful of of people. This is a completely different scenario for the prime minister. What are your thoughts? Well, the irony is he's, um, (laughs) you know, the the previous protests you referenced were from from people mostly, I would say, on uh, on the right or people who are angry about vaccine mandates, convoy, this kind of thing. Um, these are people who I think he assumed would be in his corner, i.e. people more from the progressive, so-called progressive left, um, uh, people from the Muslim diaspora, Palestinian diaspora community, and they're not happy with him either. So no one's happy with him. Um, I think that uh, what you're seeing, I mean, the, the, the war has brought out extreme viewpoints um, and extreme protests like likes we have not seen in this country, uh, at least in my memory. And he's now getting a taste of that firsthand. I think that um, part of that is because he has taken stances. I think that, um, I mean, I, I don't agree with the, the, the equivocation that I feel like he has given on this mm-hmm. issue. Uh, these people would say, however, he hasn't gone far enough in their direction and saying that he should be more, demanding of a ceasefire. Now, what Canada can do to actually get a ceasefire, if that is what uh, those people think he should get, um, you know, is another question. But uh, nobody's happy with him this day. That's the bottom line. Uh, and it's how ironic is it? This is the king of the wedge issue. And now he's wedged out himself. Well, that's just it. I mean, it's you know, um, but this is what's happening around the world. You're seeing uh, people on the left side of the political spectrum increasingly divided over the issue of uh, Palestine, Israel, and Hamas. Um, There's a sense that the plot's really been lost. Um, A lot of people, especially within the Jewish community, the Jewish progressive community, are shocked to find that people are now calling them oppressors, um, you know, calling for boycotts of their businesses, uh, things that they would not have expected from people who ideologically they thought were their allies and had allied with them. And, you know, in, in the United States, for example, um, the progressive Jewish movement has been much of the, you know, the forefront of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. There's been an allyship between uh, groups that have been persecuted in the past, including Black Americans and uh, Jewish people around the world. And now you're seeing a fracture in all sorts of places, whether it's academia, whether it's the sort of intersectionality of the left. It, it's shocking. A lot of people are shocked. And Trudeau has kind of fallen into that that crack, that space, too, because you know, he assumed that all the people were his friends, and now they're not. Is this not as simple as democracy and freedom versus authoritarian authoritarianism and terrorism? I mean, it's less about Palestinians in Israel's left versus right, religion versus religion. It's freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and, and terrorism. Why? How is that getting lost here? Well, uh, 
if you ask, if I ask my Jewish friends, they will say anti-Semitism. That's what's losing. That's what's getting lost. And, and uh, that's what's making people lose this. And I, I hate to think they're right, but I do think that that is, they are. I think that's a huge part of it. I think that um, this whole, the whole narrative we're seeing, you're right, um, Scott, it's, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They oppress their own people, the same people that people who are being hurt in this, in this fighting, in this war, the Palestinians. Um, Hamas is not making life any better for them. They are using them for their own purposes, um, just as they, you know, savaged the Israeli population, the 1,400 people they killed for their own purposes. They have no respect, just like ISIS did, for for life or anything, um, you know, approaching democracy or all the things you talk about. So really what we should be saying is Hamas out of Palestine, Hamas out of Israel, Hamas out, mm-hmm. period. Like, they should get out, right? Um, but that is not what's being said. And instead, it's this, you know, it's this sense of, oh, well, you got to stop bombing because it's, it's, it's hurting. Sure, it's hurting people. It's killing people. But the reason it's continuing is because Hamas is holding hostages. Hamas is, you know, has said it will do this again and again. You're right. I think that, unfortunately, a lot of people do not consider um, Jewish people victims. They consider them oppressors. This is a narrative that's been now installed. And, you know, it, it is. It's making people see this in a totally different way. I think a wrong way. I think that it, you know, it doesn't make any sense. They are victims in this situation. They have historically been victimized, um, and uh, it is appalling, quite frankly. How do Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas? Is that possible? Well, they have in the West Bank. I mean, Hamas isn't there, right? It's the Palestinian Authority, and and Hamas is a phenomenon that grew out of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, they actually were. People compare them to ISIS. But they actually were a precursor. They predated ISIS in terms of their formation. Um, they are a jihadist, fundamentalist, religious sect. Uh, some people call them a cult. And yes, Gazans have, you know, a terrible living conditions. They have very little hope within their their, their space that they do occupy. Um, and some people will say, well, they in their desperation they turn to Hamas, sort of thing. But I don't buy that. I think Hamas has used terror, it has used oppression of its own population to get its own way. It's, you know, it's taken Qatari money that was supposed to be for the benefit of the Palestinians and used it to build tunnels and obtain weapons. And, you know, the leadership there has lived quite large and the population has not seen a benefit from it. And this is unfortunately a pattern you see with authoritarian regimes around the world. Uh, so, yeah, you have to separate the two. But ultimately, the Palestinians will have to do that. You're right. They have to say, we want nothing to do with you, Hamas. Um, we want something else. If we want to have two states, we want to have peace, Hamas cannot be a part of this picture because they don't want it. So it's a non-starter. Tasha, we didn't even get to your column, but uh, we'll come back and revisit that. Tasha Keridan, an important issue here, journalist, writer with National Post, G-Zero Media, her Substack page, in my opinion, author of The Right Path. Tasha, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, you too, Scott. Uh, we played some clips earlier, uh, sound bites you'll find on social media if you want to look them up, uh, showing the Prime Minister at two Vancouver restaurants last night literally getting run out of Dodge uh, when pro-Palestinian protesters showed up and uh, and started yelling and screaming at him uh, to the point where uh, the uh, secret uh, police staff, his, his security detail, had to uh, literally get him out of the restaurant and 
and uh, move them along uh, the sidewalk and such with uh, protesters in tow uh, screaming and yelling. Normally we see that on the right during the times of freedom convoys, but now it's happening on the extreme left as uh, the prime minister who's uh, king of the wedge issues has found himself caught in one. As a new poll from Leger reveals uh, what has been building up for some time and many pollsters are, uh, are, are showing results for, there is widespread dissatisfaction for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, with almost two-thirds of Canadians wanting the Prime Minister out before the next election. To talk more about all of this, Andrew ends with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and here now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing very well, uh, Scott. Nice to be back on your program. Andrew, it seems that, you know, a while ago, um, um, the, the prime minister who I have called one of the most divisive, or if not the most divisive prime minister of my lifetime, creating wedge issues when they really didn't exist, whether it was around vaccines, whether it was around gender, whether it's around climate change or what have you. Uh, it appears that um, the divide and conquer mentality has now sucked in the prime minister himself, and he seems to be getting it from all ends, all directions. Yeah, I think you're you're really astute in terms of picking up on that, Scott. Uh, you know, up until I would say, although it's been building, um, but certainly as you commented on, um, a lot of this has been uh, you know wedging on sort of right of center issues, some freedom issues, um, online censorship, the freedom convoy you talked about, vaccine mandates. Those were those were sort of some some areas that um, I think he. Uh, he kind of, uh, I would say, he potentially even enjoyed some of that sparring with uh, with folks uh, there. But uh, all the while, I think that he's he's got himself into some trouble on with his left of uh, left of center flank, uh, and it's been slow building, and it hasn't been as intense. But he's he's it's gone from disappointment to I'd say some outright anger now, um, you know. And I think of issues where he's that he's sort of walked away from calls you know electoral reform uh that was a big promise that mm. that a number of people on the left were hoping for and, and he he jettisoned that pretty early i think climate change is one suddenly that he's found himself that he he seemed to be on the right side of that with his his uh his supporters particularly those left of center but you know the move on 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 buying a pipeline in british columbia and now most recently uh seemingly kind of walking back from from his signature climate change policy, the carbon tax, and creating uh, no end no end of political turmoil, I think this has really created problems. And then, as you say, the international situation with Gaza—it's uh, there's no there's no safe spot for him right now. I'd say, Scott. It looks like the carbon tax is spiraling for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the Atlantic carbo, which the rest of the country, you know, feels left out of. Uh, right. and, and obviously that was a stronghold from him. He's, he's, he's dropping in the polls there and, and threw them that bomb on. Is it, is it the carb out or is it just more experts that have said, you know, the carbon tax isn't really helping us hit our targets. It just seems to be a revenue generator. So it seems that, that not only are there exceptions for some, but some experts are even questioning whether it's doing the job or not. Well, I, I yeah. And, and, and Look, I'm not I'm not the climate uh, expert and, and scientist on this, but you're right about. I think the environmental commissioner came out and said we're not getting anywhere near where we need to be, mm-hmm. uh, and yet I think for a large number of us, we're like, hold on, 
who are paying lots of the carbon tax. Like, yeah. I don't understand how can we how can this not be working? And so, I think what you've got is is what he. I think part of the problem, Scott, is I think to some degree this carbon tax became the silver bullet for climate change. This was going to do it, and I don't think anybody in the scientific community particularly bought onto that, but they were. Mm-hmm going along with it for the time being because it was part of what they hoped to be a broader swath of of climate change policies in terms of slowing down the uh you know our energy sector and transitioning people to things like heat pumps but none of that stuff has really been happening um and in fact i mean uh, if you look at the energy sector it's post pandemic it's picking up steam um and quite frankly, thankfully, because the, the country needs the economic activity. So it's a it's a real challenge for the for the prime minister right now in terms of uh, where he where he's trying to sort of be in uh, on the policy front. Uh, you can divide and conquer so long until there's nobody left to divide and conquer. Is that where he finds himself? How do you walk this stuff back now? Well, I think it's challenging. Um, I think, first of all, you know, we you you referenced our, our recent Leger poll on on sort of his uh, his uh, sort of approvals and impressions, and and they're they're quite poor. Um, and there's a there's a sentiment of the majority of the population that feel he should resign. And if he wants to change that, the challenge that he has is when you make up your mind about somebody as a voter, and you say either for reasons you don't like the individual or quite frankly, you're just tired of what he has to say. And, and, you know, he's not saying things that interest you anymore. Um, how do you change those minds when people stop listening? Uh, it's not going to be easy for him. And, you know, he's left with largely that core liberal voter. And even, even amongst those liberal voters, they're starting to, you know, in our poll, 24% of people who are currently voting liberal, actually think it's time for him to resign. So his safe places are getting smaller. Yeah, it's hard to find allies now for him, I'm guessing. So, um, you know, he has said he is going to go on and take this right to 2025. Do you think the internal pressure will be enough uh, to make him step away as we hear that more and more? Well, I think I think what you have to start to look for, Scott, is not so much just people grumbling that he's got to go. I think you have to look at who's organizing to replace them. Mm. That's typically when you look back at history, that's how you can, let's say, strongly encourage an incumbent, a sitting prime minister to, to leave the job is you have to sort of start to, uh, you know, there has to be an organized presence to say, you know, you should go because we're ready to, uh, we're ready to take over. And to date, I haven't seen too much of that, but I suspect, as we get uh, closer to the end of the year and into the into next year, you will start to see uh, more signs of of some organized activity around different uh, camps that will try to uh, try to bring more pressure on them to uh, to go. What about uh, Jagmeet Singh in the NDP? Is that window closing? The only numbers that are lower than than Justin Trudeau seem to be his. Right. Uh, is there an opportunity for him to fish well, or cut bait before uh, they they all go down? Yeah, you know, I it, it'll be interesting. Look, look, they had a uh, you know their big convention in your uh, in your city, which I'm sur- sure you took note of. I mean, the NDP rank and file are not, uh, you know, aren't 
thrilled with how this uh, this uh, agreement to keep the liberals in power has been working for them. They 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 really aren't getting any benefit from it. I think they balance that that fact with the looking at the polls going. I mean, we could be uh, if if we pull the pin now, we could be looking at a poly of conservative majority, and, and yeah. that's probably for them worse than this ineffectual uh, Trudeau government potentially. So it's a it's a tricky situation, but I actually think that we're getting into a situation where it's going to be uh, there's not going to be this blanket agreement that we're going to keep you in power. I suspect it might become a bit more of a case by case as we go into 2024, and and so then. Who knows? Who knows uh, where we uh, where we may end up? Andrew Ann's with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, New Poll, and there's plenty of them that are showing widespread dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with the Prime Minister. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir, and be kind to some of my uh, Winnipeg compatriots who are invading <laughs> the city for breakup. Don't you worry, we'll take care of them. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. All right. um, uh, Do you find it fascinating that uh, the prime minister was run out of two restaurants in Mm -hmm. Vancouver yesterday? Uh, Pro-Palestinian protesters uh, uh, rushing him off out of the first one. Uh, The uh, security detail rush him off. He goes to a second one in Chinatown. The same thing happens there. Like 100 police uh, had to be dispersed. Literally. Literally. Like you're not yeah. exaggerating. It was a hundred officers, no. apparently, yeah. according to Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. And normally, you know, the divide and conquer, the wedge issue. Prime Minister loves this sort of thing, especially when it's freedom convoys and it's those on the right. But it seems he has now ticked off everybody, including the the extreme left. Whether it's pro Palestinian uh, protesters, whether it's environmentalists over the carbon tax and the Atlantic carve out, it doesn't look like he's got a lot left. No, and it's so interesting when. Um, those who, when they start eating themselves, yeah. right? So, so like Trudeau was always the guy who was way on the left. I mean, there, you can argue that there have been a lot of times that his positions have been left of the NDP, which is not traditionally yes. where the liberals yeah. have been. Yes. Taken the great left of center liberal party and gone way to the extreme left. With and it, yes. so now he apparently is not left enough mm-hmm. for the left, left, left that has been created. Yeah. Which uh, tells me two things. One, uh, you're right. There's, there's no place for him to go anymore because the, the right and the center. He's divided and he's divided and conquered himself right out of the conversation. That's true. No, it really is. Like, it seems like he's left himself little room to go except for even further left. But I think that even Justin Trudeau probably looks at this and goes, wait a second, any further left. Uh, and I may be like hanging out with Che Guevara here. Like I mean, you can't, <laughs> there's not a lot further left you can go before it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it already would be in many people's eyes ridiculous, but you know, there's only so, so much space on that side to go before it goes goofy. And so, uh, and again, many people will say it already has gone goofy. I just, I, I'm amazed that we now in this country have such a large faction of those so far to the extreme of the left that even yeah. Justin Trudeau is not seeming to be yeah. left enough for you. That is, you know, we always hear people talk about the extreme right, 
We rarely yeah. talk about the extreme left. There is exactly a, we are seeing with all these protests and rallies and we, we are seeing very strong evidence that next time you want to talk about ex, right, extreme, right, or right wing extremists, you can't say that without adding left wing extremists. And I would argue that there appear to be in this country anyway, based on how many people did we see at, for example, the allegedly far right trucker rally. Well, we saw the mm. people who were there, but we didn't see people in absolute hordes all over the country marching in the streets. We saw some no. small protests here. Yeah. You're seeing thousands and thousands of people going to protest. I would argue that it appears we have way more of the extreme, extreme left in Canada yeah. than we do of the extreme right. So why is it that all of our groups are so tied up in knots concerning themselves with just the fears of the extreme right. I, I think we got to start paying some attention to what's on the other side. Absolutely. And it just seems ironic to me. I call him the most divisive prime minister of my lifetime, whether it's gender, whether it's vaccination, whether it's climate change. I mean, uh, Canadians, for the most part, feel the same about these issues. It's just the way that they tackle them that is perhaps different. But it's always his way of the highway. And now, uh, ironically, he, he's wedged himself right out of the conversation by doing what he does best. He will he will eventually go down with the name Prime Minister Wedgie. I think yeah. that's the only place that, it, I mean, he, look, he, he, I don't know if he's the most divisive, although I'm not going to argue with him on that, with you on that, because I, you, you mentioned this and I haven't thought of it. And I, so I haven't given any time to consider who else might be in that conversation. So, but you are right. I mean, on the point of divisiveness, I don't know if he's the most divisive, but look in this country, if you look at where Canada was eight years ago, as far as being connected and yeah. you look at where unity. we are now, unity versus now. Yeah. I don't think there's any dispute that we are a far more divided country. Now, can you blame all of that on Trudeau? No, you can't blame all of that on Trudeau, but can you blame some of that on him and his party's policies that he has been the leader and face of? Absolutely you can. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. You know, Scott, I can live with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Montreal Alouettes using our Ticats change rooms as long as I get to see Green Day. 